on to our second subject, and it has turned eight o'clock, so if anyone hasn't hit submit, I need you literally to hit it now, yeah? Anyone who hasn't hit submit, like in the next 30 seconds, your exam will not be counted. So please, if you haven't hit submit, hit it now. Okay, this is our new subject, and this is a subject that is extremely, extremely interesting and very, very beloved to me. And I, wallahi, I feel it is one of the forgotten subjects. And I don't mean forgotten that nobody knows it, because alhamdulillah, there are many, many hundreds and thousands of people around the world who know it. But in terms of the general Muslims, it is one of the forgotten subjects. When you hear the general Muslims, you talk to them about aqeedah, alhamdulillah, many of them will say, I've been to an aqeedah lesson, I've sat through an aqeedah, I've read a book about it. But this is one topic where most people will not have very much information at all. And I would say the majority of people might never have read anything about it at all. What we're going to be talking about relates to the sciences of the Qur'an. And we've titled the subject an introduction to the sciences of the Qur'an. Ulumul Qur'an. Now, in some ways, what I just said, uh, it will become clear that in some ways it's not true. Because in some ways there are parts of Ulumul Qur'an that all of us know. For example, Tajweed is a part of Ulum al-Qur'an. And so all of you guys know, or most of you guys will have studied Tajweed. But what I'm talking about in terms of Ulum al-Qur'an is the majority of Ulum al-Qur'an, the, the sort of information you would get if you read a book titled Ulum al-Qur'an, the sciences of the Qur'an. So first of all, we need to understand what this subject is. Because like we did in Aqeedah, we have to define what is Ulum al-Qur'an. So Ulum al-Qur'an is made up of two words. As it will not be surprising for you to hear. Ulum and Qur'an. Okay? Ulum is the plural of ilm. Ulum is the plural of ilm. And ilm, it means knowledge. And so the plural is what we probably call sciences or different branches of knowledge al-ulum are sciences or different branches of knowledge and the quran we will come to its proper definition later but all of you know generally what the quran is so ulum al-quran are the sciences that relate to the quran the sciences or the branches of knowledge that relate to the Qur'an. And generally, we could divide it into many groups. I'm just going to divide it into four for you to begin with, okay? So I'm going to divide Ulum al-Qur'an. Actually, I, I might even divide it into three. Let's, let's divide it into three. Number one, branches of knowledge related to recitation. Branches of knowledge related to recitation number two branches of knowledge related to the history and the recording of the quran 
And in the history of the Qur'an, how was it revealed, how was it written, how was it recorded, how was it preserved? <coughs> and thirdly, branches of knowledge that relate to understanding and implementing the Qur'an. So the first branch of knowledge, those things that relate to recitation. So what is included in those things that relate to recitation? Tajweed is included. Tajweed being the science of pronunciation, how to pronounce the Qur'an properly, how to recite the Qur'an properly. Included in recitation is the science of the qira'at, the different ways of reciting the Qur'an. Now many of you might have heard the different qira'at without even realizing it. Have you ever heard anyone recite Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim Maliki Yawmiddin Some of you will have said yes, I've heard someone recite like this. So this is a qira'ah. It's a way of reciting the Qur'an. And I love this science. This is one of my favorite sciences to study. The qira'at. But so many people these days, it's almost absent. Maybe in the whole of Dubai, there is only one or two masajid that you can go to where the imam reads in a different qira'ah than hafs, which we are all, hafs and asim, which we are all accustomed to. Okay, many of you have heard the imam recite Maliki Yawmiddin. How many of you have heard him recite Zirata Ladina and Amta Alayhum? I mean, not so many, less. Yani. Zirat with a cross between a sad and a zai, not a za like this and not a sad, but a zirat, like halfway between a sad and a zai. And then alayhum instead of alayhim. This is also a qira'ah of the Quran. So this is something that you guys, inshallah, will hopefully understand and take to learning. And I've said before that I genuinely believe that we should be teaching our children the qira'at of the Qur'an. Firstly, the qira'at give you, it's like learning the Qur'an 10 times over. More than 10 times, but at least 10 times over. And you have, it's like learning the Qur'an 10 times. You have lots more information in there. You have a different aspect on the ayat, a slightly different meaning, a slightly different emphasis. And it's a miracle of the Qur'an that you can fit all of those into a single book. No other book can be read in over 10, and 10 is not the limit, over 10 different ways and still be the same book and still make perfect sense and still have no contradictions and yet give you different meanings to the meanings that it gave you before. This is a miracle of the Qur'an. So if any of you, your children or yourself, are hafad of the Qur'an, your hafid of the Qur'an, I strongly recommend that you do not stop at hif of one way of reciting the Qur'an, but you begin again with another hifth, and you do hifth again. If you've done hafs and asim, which most of us know, the, the normal way that people recite the Qur'an in the masajid, then I recommend that you do warsh and nafi'. And I recommend that you do it, I recommend that you do it like you did hafs, and you don't sit with a book of what's the difference between warsh and hafs, and this one is different here, and you just learn the Qur'an again. You memorize the whole Qur'an again, but in the qira'ah or the riwayah of warsh and nafi'. And my teacher also recommended to me you do this three times. He said, I recommend you memorize the Qur'an three times. 
once in the recitation that is common in your country, for us it is Hafs. Then again, in the next most common recitation, which is common in the world, which if you've done Hafs is Warsh, and if you've done Warsh is Hafs. And then one more. He said, if you do this, you will have covered all of the different rules and regulations and procedures of recitation. In other words, if you gather, for example, Hafs and Warsh and Qalun, then you have gathered every different kind of recitation in one place, even though the others will not be different from one of those three, for example, generally. So if you can learn the Quran twice or three times, then you can take a book of rules, like a shatibiyah and you can just learn the rules. You can just learn what is the difference between this one and this one and this one and this one without learning the Quran, without memorizing the Quran ten times over. But at least you need to memorize the Quran twice or three times over and then start learning the rules. This is easier for the recitation. People who learn the rules in the beginning, they struggle. It's like, for example, if I gave you a book of Tajweed. What would happen if I gave you guys a book of Tajweed and said, no, no practice. Read these rules. What do you do with this? What do you do with the And you start doing all of these rules and then I just give you the Quran and say read. You will struggle to be able to read the Quran properly. So what do we start our kids with? We don't start them with ahkam and mim as-sakina and so on. We start them with reciting alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen till they develop some skill, then we teach them the rules. The qira'at are no different. It's better that you learn another qira'a like you learned your first one, just memorizing the Quran, one page, another, 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 and then you start learning the rules. This way it will be, it will be easier for you. So this is a type of the branch of, of, uh, of issues regarding uh, recitation. Included in the, in the branches of recitation are the, the rewards of reciting the Quran. The rewards of reciting the Quran, this is also included. And the etiquette of reciting and memorizing. So there are etiquettes for the one who has memorized the Quran, what we call adab hamalat al-Quran. The etiquettes of the one who has memorized the Quran. Is it befitting for someone to memorize the Quran and then to be lazy with his salah? Is it befitting for someone to say, I'm half of the Quran and then he swears and curses and cusses? You know, like a person who is, you know, like a street seller, like a, you know, a street vendor on the side of the road. There are rules and there are regulations and etiquettes of the person who memorizes the Quran. How should they behave? What kind of personality should they have? What kind of behavior should they display? And as we've said before, one of the major differences between the early generations and our generation when it comes to the Quran is that the early generation took memorizing the Quran to be very, very serious. You could be appointed to the judiciary if you memorized two surahs from the Quran, Al-Baqarah and Ali Imran. And you would be appointed to the judiciary and you become a judge. You become somebody of extreme knowledge in the sight of the people. Now, you know, every 10-year-old child has memorized 10 juz, 12 juz, 15 juz. But you don't see those, the effect of that recitation upon them. So they still, you know, treat the, the things the same way. They still speak the same way. They still behave the same way. 
So part of the area of recitation is about the etiquettes of reciting the Qur'an. How should the memorizer of the Qur'an behave? What should their personality and character be? What kind of knowledge should they have and display? So that's a part of recitation. The next one that we said is the history of the Qur'an. The history of the Qur'an. So this includes the stages of revelation. Because the Qur'an was not revealed in one stage to the Prophet Muhammad It was sent down in one stage. Because Allah said, We sent it, i.e. the whole of the Qur'an, down on the night of the decree or the night of power, Laylatul Qadr. However, it was revealed to the Prophet over a period of 23 years approximately. In little pieces, piece by piece, ayah by ayah. And there's a lot to understand about that. Was it revealed in order? We're going to learn that it wasn't revealed in order. It wasn't revealed in alif, lam, mim, al kitabu la rayba fi, hudan lil muttaqeen. Parts were revealed in order. Parts were revealed one ayah and then another ayah from another surah and then another ayah from another surah. So how did the Quran come to be ordered in the way that it is? How was the Quran revealed in stages? What are the different stages of, re of revelation of the Quran? How was the Quran compiled into a single book? Because we know that the entire Quran was recited to the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, or the Prophet Muhammad wasallam recited it to his companions and Jibreel recited it and he recited it to Jibreel and it was recited to the companions. How did that recitation end up in a mushaf, in a single copy of the Qur'an? And just for terminology, we're going to use this word a lot. The copy of the Qur'an, the one you have here, we don't say the masjid has hundreds of Qur'ans. This is not the right terminology. We say in this masjid there are hundreds of Qur'ans. No, we use the word mushaf. Mushaf, amim, and sad, and ha. And fa. This, is, this means a copy of the Qur'an. There is only one Qur'an. There are not millions of Qur'ans in the world. There is only one Qur'an. But there are millions of masahif, of copies of the, the mushaf. So how did it end up in a mushaf? What about the history of writing the Qur'an? How was the Qur'an written down? Sort of... What about the, you know that the Qur'an is not written the same way as ordinary Arabic is written. There are some differences. Why are those differences there? Why do you get a little alif sitting in the top of the word? Why is it that some words are not written the same way that they are written in ordinary Arabic spelling? Why is it that in ordinary Arabic we write a, a kasra underneath a shedda? And we write the shedda sign and then we write the kasra sign. And in the Qur'an, the kasra is written under the letter. The way, the way that the hamza is written, why is it written with a little sad sign on the top? This is part of how the Qur'an is written and the skill and the style of writing the Qur'an. And likewise, how was the Qur'an preserved? How was the Qur'an preserved? Because the Qur'an is preserved. 
It's preserved for us as it was revealed letter by letter and word by word to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It's been preserved. But how did that take place? Was it by writing it down? Was it by oral transmission? How was it passed from teacher to student? How many teachers did they used to be? How many students? How many of the Sahaba taught the Quran? How many of them learned the Quran and how many of them became major figures in the teaching of the Quran? And what were the differences in the things that they taught? This is all a part of Ulum al-Quran. With regard to understanding and implementation, the most obvious example of this is a tafsir Now here we have to be a little bit careful. We have to be a little bit careful. What is the link between ulum al-Quran and between tafsir? Because almost all of you will be aware of tafsir, the interpretation or the explanation of the Quran. When you read tafsir, for example, Ibn Kathir, tafsir is a sub-science of ulum al-Quran in a technical sense. And in a technical sense, it falls under ulum al-Quran. However, practically, Practically, it's generally considered to be its own subject because of the large volume of content. So when you get a book which with the title of the book is Ulum al-Quran, don't expect to see a lot of tafsir in that book. Even though tafsir is a sub-science of Ulum al-Quran. What you might find in that book is what we call Usul al-Tafsir. Usul al-Tafsir, i.e. the principles upon which we make tafsir of the Qur'an. For example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَأَقِيمُ الصَّلَاةَ وَآتُ الزَّكَةِ Perform the prayer and give the zakah. What is the meaning of, how do we understand this meaning? What is the meaning of salah? Salah in Arabic is dua. Does this mean we have to make dua any five times a day? Allahumma ghfirli. Yeah, I prayed. How do we understand the tafsir of the ayah? The way that we understand tafsir and the way that we make tafsir. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَالسَّمَاءِ tariq." How do we understand what is the meaning of al-tariq? Because Allah told us, وَمَا أَدَرَاكَ مَا The bright shining star. So this science of how do we make tafsir of the Qur'an? Because you can't make tafsir based on your desires. I think the verse means this, you think it means this. How do we approach tafsir? This you will find in a book of Ulum al-Quran and you will find in a separate science which we're going to cover called Usul al-Tafsir. So the answer to this, just to recap, is tafsir. And Usul al-Tafsir are branches of Ulum al-Quran. However, because of the large amount of content in them, they are often separated into separate books. They are often separated and divided into separate books. Likewise, Tajweed will be separated into a separate book. Why? Not because of its size, because Tajweed is not very big, but because of the need of people to learn it and they're relatively being more important than the other areas of Ulum al-Quran. So that's why Tajweed you'll often find in a separate book because we want to teach it to our children. We don't want to give them, you know, eight volumes of Imam al-Suyuti's famous book on Ulum uh, al-Quran, al-Itqan, 
When we want to teach our children Tajweed, do we give them eight volumes of Al-Itqan fi Ulum Al-Quran and say, there you go, learn how to pronounce Surah Al-Fatiha. No, instead of that, we have taken those elements of Ulum Al-Quran and brought it into a separate small book that they can learn, which will teach them Tajweed. So you will find areas of Ulum Al-Quran. Ulum Al-Quran is the big umbrella that covers everything. And you'll find areas which are separate in other books. Okay, we talked about tafsir. Okay, likewise, within understanding of the Quran is the topic of asbab and nuzul. The reason why or the causes of revelation. Why were certain ayat revealed? What was the cause behind the revelation? Was it because of an event that happened with one of the Sahaba and then the ayah was revealed? Were there multiple causes or just a single cause? Does every ayah have one cause? Or could an ayah be revealed more than once about two different things in two separate times? This is the kind of thing that we deal with in Ulum al-Quran. Likewise, Asbab al-Nuzul often has separate books. What will, what will you find in a book of Ulum al-Quran? With regard to Asbab al-Nuzul, the causes of revelation, you'll often find a discussion, a general discussion about them. Like, can you have more than one cause for an ayah? Can you have more than one ayah for a cause? Uh, are all of the causes of, uh, of revelation known or are they not known? And so on. You will actually get books on Asbab al-Nuzul which talk about every individual ayah and why it was revealed. Because that's obviously a big topic, so you wouldn't find it in the in the book of Ulum al-Quran. Likewise, you find the Makki and the Madani verses. Which of the verses were revealed in Makkah and which of them were revealed in Medina? Likewise, you find An-Nasikh wal-Mansukh. Those things which abrogate and those things which are abrogated. For example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may give a ruling in the Qur'an and that ruling later on is removed by another ruling and another ruling comes along and removes that first ruling so what we're going to learn about is is it the case that the Sunnah abrogates the Qur'an or does the Qur'an only abrogate itself if the Qur'an abrogates an ayah do we still recite it or is the ayah removed from the Mus'haf are there ayat in the Mus'haf which have been abrogated? And are there ayat which have been taken out of the Mus'haf which the ruling is still valid? And so this is the topic we'll talk about in the topic of An-Nasikh wal-Mansukh, abrogation. And Allah Azza wa Jal told us about this in the Qur'an. مَا نَنْسَخْ مِنْ آيَةٍ أَوْ نُنْسِهَا نَأْتِ بِقَيْرٍ مِنْهَا أَوْ مِثْلِهَا أَلَمْ تَعْلَمْ أَنَّ اللَّهَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٍ Whatever we abrogate from an ayah or cause it to be forgotten, we bring better than it or equal to it. Do you not know that Allah is able to do all things? This is another point. Also, some of the overlap with usul al-fiqh, like al-nasikh uh, wal-mansukh is an overlap with usul al-fiqh. It's also a part of usul al-fiqh. But in ulum al-Quran, we deal with a different aspect. 
So in Usul al-Fiqh, which we're going to come to, I think in the next module, I can't remember exactly, but I think it's in module two, how we extract rulings from the Quran and the Sunnah, the emphasis is how to extract the rulings. Here, the emphasis is about the Quran. Where is, what is an example of abrogation in the Quran? Is the Quran abrogated by the Quran or only by the Sunnah or is the Sunnah abrogated by the Quran and reverse it? And these are all issues, but in Ulum al-Quran, we're dealing specifically with issues that relate to the Quran. Whereas the Sul al-Fiqh is more general, looking at abrogation from the point of view of how does it affect our rulings? How does it affect the halal and the haram? Here, we're not going to look how it affects the halal and the haram. We're more interested in where is it in the Quran and what are the examples of it and uh, are verses removed from the Mus'haf and if so by who, who removes them or who includes them and so on. Uh, some other things that relate to Usul al-Fiqh, al-Muhkam wal-Mutashabih wal-Aam wal-Khas wal-Mutlaq wal-Muqayyid. So the different classifications of the ayat into, for example, uh, Aam and Khas, general and specific, um, mutlaq and muqayyid, unrestricted and restricted. And we'll talk about what those mean later on. But just so you know, there are, the ayat are classified into different types. And the classification, we study it in Ulum al-Quran. Likewise, the miraculous nature of the Quran. Al-I'jaz. The miraculous nature of the Quran. Why is the Quran miraculous? What is miraculous about the Quran? Are the meanings miraculous or the language is miraculous or both? And why? So we study the miraculous nature of the Quran. Likewise, the grammar of the Quran. And the uncommon words of the Quran. The grammar of the Quran. Again, you're probably going to find this in separate books. But you might find just a brief discussion of it in a book of Ulum al-Quran. You find separate books. I'rab al-Quran. The grammar of the Quran. Because the grammar of the Qur'an, as our Arabic has become weaker, and anyone who is a native Arabic speaker will know that our Arabic has become very weak in comparison to the Arabic that was spoken by the companions and the fusaha, yani the, the, the eloquent speakers among the Arabs. And our Arabic has become very, very weak. And so many times we might struggle to understand the grammar of the Qur'an. And so there are books which explain the grammar of the Qur'an. They explain, for example, where is the subject, where is the predicate, where is the adjective, where is, and so on. And there are also books that cover what we call Gharib al-Qur'an, uncommon words. Uh, generally, the Qur'an does not have many uncommon words because the Qur'an was revealed in a clear, beautiful Arabic language. But there are words that have become uncommon. Like they were, they were known to the companions, but in, in the development of Arabic, as Arabic has progressed throughout, the t throughout time, they've become rare, rare words, or rare usage. The word is known, but the usage of the word in the context of the Qur'an is, is maybe not known. A simple example, someone might say, it's not, not, a, not really gharib, but just to give you an example of what I mean that you can identify with, we could say, wal asr. Al-Asr, meaning time, the passage of time, is something that is not maybe as common in usage now. We might use the word Al-Zaman or Al-Zaman, maybe more than we would use the word Al-Asr. 
But we still say Asr, yani Asr and Nabi وسلم, the time of the Prophet But these are examples and you can get much more complicated words but I wanted to give you one that just you can understand how the usage might have changed. And I once remember seeing a, um, or hearing of a, uh, a brother who was translating for a sheikh in the masjid and the brother had a PhD in Arabic. So his Arabic was very good. He was a native speaker, he had a PhD. And he mistranslated the surah wal-asr. Not because he didn't understand Arabic, but because the usage has somewhat changed. And so sometimes there is a need to clarify the meaning of words in the Quran. And what is this word that maybe we're not so familiar with as we used to be in the early days of classical Arabic. So this is a little bit about ulum al-Quran. What is ulum al-Quran? Uh, in terms of what its definition is. When you understand what Ulum al-Quran contains, then you understand how important it is. And you understand that for us to be able to properly implement the Quran, and let's be, you know, let's be absolutely clear about this. The reason the Qur'an was revealed is to implement it, not to memorize it. Memorizing is a secondary benefit which leads to the primary benefit of implementing it better. Is that understood by everyone, inshallah? Like I don't want, sometimes people think the Qur'an was revealed to, I need to recite it. Or the Qur'an was revealed to, the Qur'an was revealed, for example, to memorize it. That's not the case. The Qur'an was revealed to implement it. Reciting it is a means to achieve that aim. And it's, a, it's a beneficial act of worship which brings you near to Allah because when you recite it, you increase your iman and you become near to Allah and nearer to being able to implement the rulings of the Qur'an. As for a person who recites it and doesn't implement anything, then this is like the munafiqeen who recite the Qur'an but they don't implement anything from the Qur'an at all. So it doesn't benefit them their recitation. The primary benefit, there are many secondary benefits, but the primary benefit behind the, or the primary wisdom behind the revelation of the Qur'an is for you to implement it in your life, for you to act upon it. And to act upon it in its most full or in its fullest capacity to be able to do that, you need to be able to understand about this Qur'an. And Ulum al-Qur'an gathers many, many sciences that are essential for understanding the Qur'an. Of course, among the most important of them is a tafsir The tafsir of the Qur'an is among the most important uh, sort of categories of understanding the Qur'an and implementing it. But in general, all of the parts of the Ulum al-Qur'an are important. The different ways of recitation, the proper way of pronouncing, the history of the Qur'an, what is abrogated, what isn't. I mean, all of these are important parts of implementing the Qur'an. And so somebody who has a knowledge of Ulum al-Qur'an comes under the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Man ta'allama al-Qur'ana wa'allama. The best of you 
are those who learn the Quran and teach it. The best of you are those who learn the Quran and teach it. And to learn the Quran properly, you need at least a part of Ulum al Quran. And to teach the Quran properly, you need a part of Ulum al Quran. And to interpret the Quran properly, you need a part of Ulum al Quran. So it's important. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, Kitabun anzal nahu ilayka mubarakun liyadabbaru ayati. This is a book which we sent down to you and the ayah is I'll bring you for the reference inshallah tomorrow we don't have the reference Okay uh, 3829 that's the reference 38 ayah number surah number 38 ayah number 29 <coughs> A book which we sent down to you full of blessings, Mubarak. This book, this Quran is Mubarak. ayati, That they may ponder and reflect over the signs found within it. That they may ponder and reflect over the signs found within it. So no doubt the Quran with regard to, as we said, with regard to the Muslim, it's about implementing and acting upon it and also with regard to the non-muslim the quran has a purpose to establish the proof of allah upon his creation so that nobody can say after that we were ghafilun we were unaware of what allah had revealed to us so the quran was sent down one of the other primary purposes of the quran especially in terms of the non-muslims to establish the proof of allah over his servants that nobody can say we were not given any instruction or we, we did not know that we had to follow the messengers and the Quran was sent down to reflect upon and ponder upon its ayat to think about what Allah is saying to you and to implement those things in your life and that people of understanding may remember and the people of understanding will remember so this is enough of a benefit for the, you know, the, the uh, study of Ulum Al-Qur'an. A little bit about the history. A little bit about the history. And I just want to talk about this also a little bit more um, generically, if I might. A lot of people ask about this issue. That the books we have today, I go to the library and I see a book on Aqidah, and a book on Usul al-Fiqh, and a book on Tafsir, and a book on Ulum al-Quran, and a book on Seerah, and a book on history of the Khulafa al-Rashidin and so on and so on and a person might say how did these end up like this how did we end up with these separate sciences when we don't find these separate sciences from the Prophet 
First of all, we say the origin of all of these sciences is the Prophet And if you look through Sahih al-Bukhari, for example, and Sahih Muslim, these are jawami' they are books that are comprehensive. You find tafsir, and you find principles of the sharia, and you find rulings of hadith, principles of hadith, and you find, you know, uh, tafsir of the Quran, and you find the interpretation of dreams, and you find the halal and the haram. You find many, many things, but it's not filtered into a single science. So in the beginning, it began with the Prophet So for example, we find in the ayah in Surah Al-An'am, ayah number 82. الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَلَمْ يَلْبِسُوا إِيمَانَهُمْ بِظُلْمُ أُولَٰئِكَ لَهُمُ الْأَمْنُ وَهُمْ مُهْتَدُونَ Those who believe and do not mix their faith with ظُلْم I'll come to ظُلْم in a minute It is they that have safety and it is they that will be guided The companions came to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam because the word dhulm has lots of meanings. The word dhulm, it means oppression, i.e. self-oppression. And it means oppressing other people. And it means oppression with regard to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it has lots of meanings. So the companions became confused. They said, O Messenger of Allah, which of us do not do injustice? Meaning all of us do sins, all of us sin. Does that mean that if we sin, we will not be safe, nor will we be guided? And everybody who sins is condemned to Jahannam. Or have we misunderstood the ayah? The Prophet ﷺ told them that the ayah, it's not as you have understood it. It is as Luqman said to his son, Ya Bunayya la tushrik billah inna shirka la azim. Oh my son, do not make a partner with Allah making partner with Allah, making a partner with Allah is the greatest oppression. Is the greatest oppression. So the ayah in Surah Al-An'am, the explanation of dhulm is not sin, nor is it being nasty to your friend or, you know, not speaking to your neighbor. That is not the meaning of dhulm in the ayah of Surah Al-An'am. The meaning of dhulm is ashirk billahi subhanahu wa ta'ala, making a partner and associating others with Allah Azza wa Jal. So the companions became confused. They came to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam explained to them the parts of the Quran that they didn't understand and showed them how to, how to implement it. So among the companions, this is the next generation, of course, first of all, you have the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Then at the next level among the companions, you have many of the companions who were known for their expertise in the Qur'an. Particularly Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali radiallahu anhum. And sometimes we forget this. You know, if you sometimes say, who is the most knowledgeable in, in fiqh among the companions? And somebody, you know, gives the name of, uh, you know, one of the companions. And you say, who is the most knowledgeable in tafsir? And they give, you know the name of Ibn Abbas and they ask who is the most knowledgeable in recitation and so on and so forth but in reality they forget 
that the most knowledgeable in fiqh and hadith and recitation of the Quran were the Khulafa al-Rashidun. Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali. But because they later on came to take over the ruling of the Muslims, there's no doubt that they became busy with the general affairs of the Muslims as opposed to, you know, for example, concentrating on one particular science. So maybe, for example, Ubay ibn Ka'b and Zayd ibn Thabit may be more famous in terms of what we know of knowledge of the Qur'an, but there is no doubt that the knowledge of Abu Bakr of the Qur'an eclipsed the knowledge of Ubay and the knowledge of, of Zayd radiallahu anhumah. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. So sometimes we forget this. Like sometimes when you say who is the most knowledgeable in fiqh among the companions and somebody says, okay, then they give the name of one of the companions. They say Ibn Mas'ud, for example. The most knowledgeable in fiqh of the companions is Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu. However, in terms of becoming famous for fiqh as opposed to general, then there's no doubt that the likes of uh, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, for example, uh, and Abdullah ibn Umar, and Um Salama, and Aisha, and so on and so forth, became more famous. In hadith, people say Abu Huraira. Because there's no doubt that Abu Huraira gives special attention to hadith. But in terms of generally, the Khulafa al-Rashidun are among, among the four or at the forefront of all of the sciences of Islam. But those who became famous for their knowledge of the Qur'an include, apart from those, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, uh, Ibn Abbas, Ubay ibn Ka'b, Zayd ibn Thabit, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, Abdullah ibn Zubair, and Aisha, radiallahu uh, anhum. And we continue to emphasize, and especially when you hear that you hear Aisha on that list. There isn't a science of Islam that you would mention except that Aisha would be listed in the top five of or the top ten of the, the companions who studied that science. In hadith, she is the fourth most frequent narrator from the Prophet ﷺ. In fatawa, in fiqh, in judgments, in giving out the halal and the haram, she gave out, she is the fourth most of the companions in giving out judgments. In the Qur'an, she is famous for her knowledge of the ways of recitation of the Qur'an and the preservation of the knowledge and the tafsir of the Qur'an. And in every sub-science, Aisha radiallahu anha has precedence among it. And that shows us the importance of educating our women, our wives and our daughters, and not leaving them to be, you know, that like we should have men who are qurra and we should have men who are fuqaha from the fuqaha, yani, we should have men who are muhaddithun. And we should also have among them, the female companions, there were among them those who excelled in the recitation of the Quran. And you will hear the role that Hafsa radiallahu anha pray, uh, played in the preservation of the Mus'haf, uh, that she was the one entrusted with the keeping of the Mus'haf. And just while I'm on the topic, this is a very strong refutation of those people who claim that Islam reduces the status of a woman or doesn't trust her because the, because the testimony of two women is equal to that of one man. And they say that this is saying, you know, you are just putting the women as being ignorant and you are lowering them down and you are just saying that, you know, they are just, they are no good for anything. The Mus'haf was left with Hafsa, radiallahu anha. 
I mean, the entire entrusting of the Qur'an was left to a woman. We take ahad narrations from Aisha radiallahu anha regarding the most serious issues of our religion that we don't take from, and we haven't took from thousands of men. And we take from Aisha in terms of rulings and hadith what we don't take from 100,000 men after her. So it's not possible after you see the role that these female companions played that someone can say that Islam reduces the reduces the, the position of a woman because the testimony of two women is equal to that of one man. This is testimony in a certain situation for a wisdom that Allah Azza wa Jal knows, a weakness within the character of a woman or an inter a tendency to be, for, for example, pressured uh, in court or to protect her or to stop her from forgetting whatever Allah Azza wa Jal who created male and female knows best about. And for the reason that Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. But it's not true to say that Islam did not value the intellect and the position and the knowledge of women in Islam. Rather, when you read sciences like Ulum al-Quran and like uh, Mustalah al-Hadith uh, and like, you know, science of Hadith and Tafsir, you will see within those sciences that the role the female companions played was a major role that we are dependent upon them in. And there are thousands of ahadith that we only took from women. And they have nobody else in the chain. Nobody else that it came to us from a woman. For example, Aisha or Umm Salama or Hafsa radiallahu anhun. And likewise, the preservation of the Quran and the, the sciences of the Quran. So this is an important point to note because this is a big shubha in these days. And people come and say, you know, you relegate the woman to a second class citizen. And you say, how is your, what is your evidence for this? And he says, well, the testimony of two women is equal to that of one man. And the inheritance, the, the male gets twice that of the female. They don't tell, but the female doesn't have to spend that money upon anybody. It's hers. The man has to spend that money upon his wife. So it makes sense to give the man more than to give the woman because the man is obliged to spend upon that money, from that money on his wife and his daughter and so on. Whereas the woman, whatever money she gets, it is hers. Nobody can take it from her, not even a single dinar or a single dirham. Every single penny of it, every single dirham of it belongs to her. As for the man, the money has to spend. So just be aware that this, and these words are said, and be aware that within these sciences, you can find a very good way of replying to those words. So if the testimony of a woman was not of any value, then why do we take the testimony of Hafsa with regard to the Mus'haf? Why do we take the testimony of Aisha with regard to the major issues of our religion? It's clear that this is specific to a particular circumstance, which is a testimony the woman gives in a court or in a similar situation, and that there is a wisdom for that in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, so we've talked about the companions. Among the next generation from the tabi'un, that is the generation after the companions. Who do we have? We have the likes of Sa'id ibn Jubair and Mujahid. And Mujahid ibn Jabr and Ikrimah and Tawus and Ata. All of them were famous as being from the students of Ibn Abbas. And one of them gathered how much of knowledge? And he, subhanAllah. And if you were to gather the tafsir of Mujahid alone, 
it would suffice you for the tafsir of the Quran. And yet he was just one student from the students of Ibn Abbas. So there were those students. Likewise, uh, the students of Ubay ibn Ka'b, Zayd ibn Aslam, Abu Aliya, Muhammad ibn Ka'b. And likewise, the teachers of Ibn Mas'ud, uh, the students of Ibn Mas'ud, like Alqama and Masruq and Al Hassan al Basri and Qatada. So you have huge numbers of the Tabi'un that were famous. Now, what do you see? The numbers of the Tabi'un that were famous for specifically for tafsir of the Quran or Ulum al Quran were more than that number that we recited from among the companions. That's because each companion had of those companions had many, many, many students. So Aisha, she had students. And Ibn Mas'ud had students. And Ibn Abbas had students. And Ubay ibn Ka'b had students. And then they became extremely famous for that particular science of the Quran. And then as time went on, it became the norm to separate the Islamic sciences. The Prophet ﷺ did not separate. He did not come and say, O Muslims, I'm going to teach you something from Ulum al-Qur'an today. Today our lesson is tafsir. The Prophet ﷺ taught tafsir and fiqh and, and principles and all together in one go. And that was the right thing for that time. And then as time went on, the books were solidified into separating that knowledge into separate fields in order to make it easy for the student who came later on. Because there's no doubt the times changed, situations changed. Those books do not have things in them that are invented, yani in general, yani at least if they're from reliable authors. They do not, you know, it wasn't that the author just invented things. They took it from the Prophet ﷺ, but they differed in the way that they compiled it. So instead of having it spread across many, many years of ahadith and, you know, and different ayat, Instead, they kind of filtered it and said, right, I'm going to write a book just about Ulum al-Quran. I'm going to write a book just about tafsir. I'm going to write a book just about hadith. And that's another important point when people say to you, all of the sciences of Islam were written down 200 years after the hijrah. They want to make the Islam like the Bible. And they want to make the sciences of Islam like the Bible. And it has no history to it. It was just invented 200 years after. That's not the case. They were taught by the Prophet ﷺ and by his companions and by the group that came after them. But they were formally written into separate subjects. 100 years, 150 years, 200 years, depending on the subject uh, and depending on the author. Probably the first science of the Qur'an to be written down was tafsir. From among those who wrote early books of tafsir include Imam Sufyan al-Thawri, Ibn Uyayna, Waqi' Shu'bah, and these are among the companions who, or among the scholars who wrote books of 
tafsir, yani from the later generations. The earliest among them that we know of is probably Sufyan al-Thawri, who died 161 years after the Hijrah. And as you know, as we've said before, writing was not common among the companions. Writing became common around about somewhere, you know, between 100 and 200 years after the Hijrah, writing became the norm. Before that, oral tradition was the norm. And it's not fair to judge the Muslims based on this. It's not fair for a person to say, how can you say this when? You know, like, they, for example, they will, they will take away or detract from Islam based on the fact that um, it was orally transmitted in the beginning. But what we have to understand is that oral transmission was the best way for those people. And written transmission was the best way for the later people, the latter people who came along. The early people, they, they couldn't write. So if you're going to tell them to write down a book of tafsir, how do you expect them to write down a book of tafsir when, they, when many of them could not write? That's unfair to request them to write down a book of tafsir. Because they couldn't write, and like you see with someone, for example, who is blind. If you ever see a person who is blind or, or, or has extremely limited vision, their hearing is very good. And their sense of touch and smell is far better than a normal, for example, sighted person's sense of touch and smell. So likewise, those people who couldn't write, their memory was far, far greater than our memory. Why? Because every time we forget something, we just write it down. When you can't write something down, you naturally develop a very, very strong memory. So the best way of them preserving this knowledge was by by memory. And later on, when people started to write, and of course there were companions who wrote, but they were very limited in number. When later on people started to write very frequently and everyone learned to write, people's memory became worse. Because now you rely upon writing and you're not used to using that part of your brain. So what Allah takes from one, He gives to the other. And so it's not anything surprising that books started being written 150, 140 years after the Hijrah because that was the age when people started to be able to write like commonly, like everybody could write or most people could write by 300 years after the Hijrah, almost nobody was memorizing in the way of the older, the early generations and people would check their memorization against writing so it's, no, it's not surprising to see. Uh, probably the very most famous book of tafsir to be written and the earliest one that we have easy access to is the tafsir of Ibn Jarir al-Tabari. Tafsir al-Tabari. And Ibn Jarir died in 310 years after the Hijrah. And in my mind, this remains the best book of tafsir that has ever been written. Certainly the, in terms of comprehensively. I mean, maybe the tafsir of the individuals before him was better in terms of narrations. But in terms of a comprehensive book of tafsir, your first place to look at tafsir should be tafsir al-Tabari. Especially because the aqidah of al-Imam al-Tabari was the aqidah of Ahl al-Sunnah. As opposed to those who came after him from many of the scholars of tafsir who fell into ilm al-Kalam, rhetoric and philosophy, and many of them that fell into changing you know, words and meanings regarding the names and attributes of Allah, 
At-Tabari represents a tafsir which is according to the, to, the, to the beliefs of the early generations. And he's not the only one, of course, but definitely one thing my teacher, one of my teachers, uh, Sheikh Ali Tawajiri, used to always tell us, and I remember he used to give everybody a hard time about this. Try not to rely upon the later generations of tafsir when you can take tafsir from the early generations. So for example, someone might quote Al-Jalalain. And that's fine when you're beginning. But you know Jalalain has aqidah issues in it. This book, uh, Tafsir Al-Jalalain, it has issues in it with regard to belief, with regard to the names and attributes of Allah and so on. So why quote from something like Al-Jalalain when you can quote from At-Tabari? And At-Tabari lived 300 or died 310 years after the Hijrah. And you get much closer to the understanding of the early generations. Now there's nothing wrong with these books like Al-Jalalain. We still benefit from Tafsir Al-Jalalain today. But you have to understand the weaknesses that exist in the books of the later generations. Even Ibn Kathir, Rahimahullah, Despite having the correct aqidah and being upon the aqidah of Ahl-Sunnah, even Ibn Kathir fell into errors in this regard in his tafsir, where he quoted from the people of rhetoric or the people of kalam, or where he, uh, for example, quoted from the, you know, excessively from the Jews and the Christians. And that's not blameworthy because that's what he, he gathered together the tafsir from. There's nothing wrong with that. But you have to understand that the more you can go back to the early generations and take their tafsir, the closer you will be to the understanding of the Prophet and his companions. So Tafsir al-Tabari is a major resource. The problem with Tafsir al-Tabari is two things. Number one, to the best of my knowledge, it only exists in Arabic and it's absolutely huge. And the second one is that it's quite complex to use. So definitely using Ibn Kathir is an excellent alternative. Using Tafsir Al-Imam Al-Sa'di, for example, one of the, the summarized tafsirs, excellent. Even Al-Jalalain, very good, and for the most part, as long as you avoid the names and attributes. It's very, very good to use his tafsir. Very simple and easy to understand. But as you develop your knowledge in tafsir, we want you guys to be going back to the original sources. And one of the best books to gather the original sources of tafsir is the tafsir of Al-Imam. At-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala. And there are many others, yani, that, uh, some of which we have available and some of which we don't have available. Uh, after tafsir, um, people like, for example, uh, Ali ibn al-Madini. Uh, Ali ibn al-Madini, who died in 234 after the hijrah, he uh, wrote a book on Asbab al-Nuzul. So this is probably the first person or among the first people to write a book on the other sciences of the Qur'an apart from tafsir. And so in the beginning we have the likes of Sufyan al-Thawri who died 161 after the Hijrah. About, what are we talking about, 70 years roughly later we start to see books on Ulum al-Qur'an, what we would term Ulum al-Qur'an today, things like Asbab al-Nuzul, 
things like uh, you know qiraat and things like that al-nasikh wal mansukh was also written around about 270 after the hijrah um, and so on and there's no doubt that the books of hadith are full of ulum al-quran any sahih al-bukhari and sahih muslim and so on and so forth uh, later on people came probably around about 300 years after the hijrah around about the time of al-imam al-tabari people came and started to kind of distill all of this separate knowledge into very distinct books on ulum al-quran and, and uh, gathering them together giving them names for example uh, one of the first ones that we have as an example we have al-burhan fi ulum al-quran um, which is uh, around about three just around about the early 330 something like that after the hijrah so we have you know books that were written at that time and then later on very famous books that became you know probably the most famous of the later books on ulum al-quran is the book of al-suyuti al-itqan fi ulum al-quran and this is an excellent excellent uh, uh, book of which we'll be quoting from uh, extensively in English, and I'm going to finish off now because it's about time for us to stop and just take questions. In English, there are, there, there are not that many books on Ulum al-Quran. Uh, however, there is one particular book that stands out um, as being very, very, very beneficial. But... I will give you a warning about it. And that is that the author of that book, later on, after having written the book, went into a lot of deviancy. And he became extremely far away from the Sunnah. So I do not recommend the author in any way. However, the book itself, to the best of my knowledge, is an amazing, amazing book, which really there isn't anything else available. If there was something else, I would recommend it to you. And this is the book which is uh, called, and I will find the name for you. Let's see if I can find the name. It is called An Introduction to the Sciences of the Quran. By Yasir Qadi. And those of you who know Yasir Qadi know what happened to him after that but the book that he has written is free of any of his later yani deviancy that he came with later on and really there isn't another book in the english language that i know of that gathers all of the sciences of the quran in the way that he gathered them in this book and generally with regard to his work i have no problem with using his early work in the work that he wrote in the time when he was in medina before he left medina and went to, to the u.s and started what he started and allahumma but I recommend yani, the, the books that were written during his time in Medina, they are exceptionally good. Yani, so I don't have a problem with this book. But be sensible. Yani, I'm telling this to you with, as an amana. Do not go and then start watching his YouTube videos and then start following his Twitter feed and all the rest. Because wallahi, it will not benefit you anything in the sight of Allah. Take this book like sometimes we have to touch upon the books of the Mubtadi'ah, yani the books of the innovators and the books of the people who deviated from Islam. Sometimes we have to benefit from their books for a limited use only. So I thought for a long time about whether I should recommend this book to you. Half of me was saying let's not recommend it because it will cause 
any problem among the brothers, but the reality is that there isn't another book which gathers together the sciences of the Qur'an in the way that this book does. And I haven't seen any deviancy in it. And I haven't seen in this book any of the deviancy that came later on. So my advice to you is to, to benefit from the book in a limited way. If you have Arabic, then don't touch it. You don't need to go near it. Because if you have Arabic, there are plenty of books in Ulum al-Qur'an in Arabic that you have no need of this book, inshallah. But for those of you who only know English, then I recommend that you get a copy of this book, an introduction to the sciences of the Qur'an, because it does cover a huge amount of beneficial uh, work, and mostly it quotes from those early books. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. So that being said, uh, inshallah, we will take about 10 minutes only of questions. I will take from the sisters usually first.